This week on Political Research Digest, are the Democratic and Republican parties becoming more similar or different? For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. It's the one-year anniversary of the podcast, and we're experimenting with a more conversational format for this special edition. Today, my guest is my co-author, Boston College political scientist David Hopkins. We'll be talking about how much the parties are changing since our book, Asymmetric Politics, in 2016. I also got a chance to ask Dave about his new Cambridge University press book, Red Fighting Blue. In Asymmetric Politics, we describe the Democratic Party as a coalition of social groups and the Republican Party as a symbolic ideological movement. We both see more change on the Democratic side since 2016, but most lines up with our theory. It seems to me the biggest change by far is this mobilization of women in the 2018 election, or really since the victory of Trump in 2016. And we see it not only in terms of general activism and political donations and other forms of political participation, but also um, particularly candidates. A lot of candidates running at, you know, female candidates running at record rates, but also Democratic primary voters supporting women for Congress and and other offices at record rates. And we've seen just in one election cycle, a a transformation of the candidate and activist population of the Democratic Party. It's tough to come up with a a clear precedent for for such a big change over such a a short time. How, I mean, that's obviously in some ways consistent um, with with our argument that people identify with a a social group and its um, policy priorities um, in the Democratic Party, um, but it hadn't heretofore really sort of been a, a group uh, that that had been active as a group within Democratic Party politics. So, so what changed, and 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 why? I guess wasn't you know feminists have always been part of the Democratic Party coalition going back a long way. But you know, I guess why hadn't it materialized in terms of candidates and and interest groups until now? Obviously, there's a Trump story here that uh, Trump in particular inspires this level of engagement and opposition, um, specifically among women, specifically among Democratic women. When we get to the bottom of the evidence of, of what's driving this change this year, I'm sure a big part of the story is going to be just that, that Trump provokes this uh, particular counter-mobilization more than previous Republican candidates. But I also think there's an interesting story about Hillary Clinton. I mean, Hillary Clinton was not someone who inspired enthusiasm among Democratic voters and activists, certainly not to the extent that Obama had done. But I do think there was something very meaningful about the idea of a woman president that in some ways the meaning became greater when she was denied the presidency. And of course, most people kind of assume going into election day she was going to win. I think for a lot of Democrats, especially a lot of Democratic women, as a genuinely historic moment, you know, make sure the kids stay up to see the first woman in history become president. I'm from Rochester, New York, which is where Susan B. Anthony is buried. And on election day in 2016, there was a long line of women coming to the gravesite of Susan B. Anthony and sticking their I voted stickers right on the, the marker. I, I do think there was something that was important that then when it was in this major upset, it was denied so abruptly, immediately generated this incredibly powerful 
political and emotional response. And we saw it right from the beginning with the Women's March, you know, in the first week of the Trump presidency that, you know, from the beginning, their legacy of 2016 on both sides, both Trump and Clinton, has translated into this unprecedented uh engagement among Democratic women this year. And what about uh, young people as a, as a social group within the Democratic uh, Party coalition? Obviously, they were associated with the Bernie Sanders uh, candidacy to, to some extent. Uh, we've seen some some recent successes of, of younger candidates. Are they operating more uh, as, a, as a sort of a, a group constituency within the Democratic Party than, than they used to be? It seems like that's possible. You know, young people are still obviously less likely to, to vote or to participate in general in politics than older people. But I I do see some dynamics within the party, at least in some of the primaries and some of the districts we've seen this year, where there's a sort of a distinctive political style that plays better with younger voters. And as millennials and the younger Gen X generation sort of start reaching the age where they would be expected to vote and otherwise participate at higher rates, I think that may, going forward, be a a more powerful constituency within the party. Certainly as a coalition partner, young people are starting to be important. If if you're running in a Democratic party, pro, party primary and you can put together a coalition that's young people plus, say, African-American or Latino voters, plus women, plus some other group, then it's... You can very easy. Yeah, it's very easy yeah. to make the math work yeah. uh, yeah. in the Democratic primary. So only being the candidate of the young probably doesn't get you the nomination in most parts of the country. But if you're the candidate of the young and somebody else, too, then maybe you're in good shape. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's a very old story in some ways in the in the Democratic Party. Um, the party reforms had quotas for young people in addition to uh, r- racial minorities. When we saw Howard Dean and Obama uh, run, they, you know, drew, drew disproportionately uh, from uh, young people uh, initially. Um, and as you see, say, there was just because there weren't very many people born in the 1970s, there was actually a time period in which there were just fewer young uh, voters relative to uh, re- relative to other other generations. Um, but the the sort of linchpin in the Democratic Party has always been uh, racial minority voters. That is, you need to have uh, some support from that constituency to win win primaries, and it ha- and they African Americans in particular have acted uh, often as a uh, a block and a constituency. Uh, that wants to be heard as as African Americans in the party is that is that changing at all? Is that constituency rising or falling, or or not really seeing much of a, a change? Well, I think we're seeing cases where that they are a critical constituency. You know, Andrew Gillum in Florida, Stacey Abrams in Georgia, cases of uh, of African American candidates in Democratic primaries that again have been able to sort of put together a coalition that's quite formidable. We saw it here in Boston with Ayanna Presley versus Capilano in the seventh district of Massachusetts, where again, an important element of that coalition is getting strong support and strong turnout from African-American 
voters. So, yeah, as the Democratic Party becomes more racially diverse, I think they increase in some ways in importance over time. And one of the major questions we get all the time, sometimes it's phrased as a criticism, but sometimes it's just <laughs> a what's likely to happen in the future, uh, is that the left uh, is really rising as the as the left uh, in in the Democratic Party. And obviously there are a few uh, examples that are that are consistent with that uh, thesis, um, although the sort of broader analyses of, of Democratic primaries this year haven't really shown much of an, an, an ideological uh, effect. That is, liberal candidates were no more likely to, to win compared to other candidates in Democratic primaries. But uh, the, there does seem to be more liberal candidates running, uh, and in particular on social issues, Democrats as a whole, uh, moving uh, leftward or at least towards, towards more acknowledgement of, of racial discrimination and towards more liberal positions on on social issues. So, so to what extent is the Democratic Party moving left, and to what extent is it moving left because of this uh, liberal movement within the Democratic Party? That's a great question. I think that we may see some overstatement of the change that has occurred. You know, this one primary win in Brooklyn and, you know, sort of cherry-picked few primary results in 2018 don't really add up to a a coast-to-coast transformation of the party. But I do think there's something to the idea that the left is becoming somewhat stronger in terms of its organization and its mobilization within the Democratic Party. And that, that has been something that has sort of hurt the left historically, has been organizational weakness, number one, in general, in America. So there's sort of been a, a protest politics preference. Um, right, over electoral in, yeah. politics, and also a sort of ambivalent relationship at best with the Democratic Party. You know, a lot of lefties have not been really sure whether the Democrats are their friend or their enemy, or whether it's better to work within the party or to try to pressure the party from outside. Maybe this is partially a a legacy of the Sanders campaign. Maybe this is partially just a a change in experience or in strategy or in ideas, but it does seem like there's more organizational energy than there was in the recent past behind a kind of a Democrat Democratic socialist or leftist um, kind of politics within the Democratic Party that's putting more focus on winning, you know, backing candidates in Democratic primaries and trying to get them into office. Now, having said that, I do think that's limited to certain parts of the country, to certain constituencies that already were usually represented by pretty liberal Democrats. I don't I don't think there's a huge transformation ideologically speaking, in the party at large. But I do think there's maybe a change in the balance of pressure where there's a bit more pressure coming from the left wing on Democratic elected officials than probably they've been used to for the past 20 or 30 years. We also discussed what had not changed for the Democrats. Surprisingly, they're looking fairly united. So any other changes that people sort of expected uh, from the Democratic Party that, that haven't materialized? I guess the one I would point to might be this continuing fight between the Bernie and Hillary factions as if they were kind of these constant uh, blocks. You know, the resistance seems to have incorporated both <laughs> pretty easily and, and sort of Trump is, is uniting the Democratic Party. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think you would normally think 
after a loss like the Democrats had in 2016, that there would be an incredible amount of internal conflict within a party in the Democrats' position, if only to assign blame for blowing a winnable election against a, a candidate that they very much uh, opposed. But I, I don't know if if it's that that Democrats feel like the health of the republic is, you know, is uh, in the balance and this is no time to point fingers or, or, or what it is. But there, there's really been less internal disagreement, ideological, tactical, really along any lines than you would sort of expect from a minority party that had just lost uh, the White House uh, in, in the fashion that they did. I don't know if this is related, but I think another point that that comes out of of what you said is that's sort of a surprising sort of a dog that that didn't bark is Bernie Sanders has sort of been much less of a factor in national politics post 2016 than I think a lot of people expected after 2016. I think they expected um, him to sort of uh, claim the mantle of spokesman for the, de- the the Democratic left or the American left to play a very prominent role in um, debates over the future of the Democratic Party to sort of try to consolidate influence. How about the Republicans? Hopkins says they've united around Trump to a greater extent than expected, but with surprising continuity in their views. One thing about the Republicans that may be somewhat surprising, I think, again, compared to expectations prior to 2017, is how thoroughly Trump has managed to consolidate power and leadership within the sort of electoral and candidate wing of the party. Um, There really is no anti-Trump faction that you can really point to that that speaks for a set of leading Republican office holders or Republican aligned interest groups. He's really succeeded pretty thoroughly in marginalizing opposition, I say not within the entire party, but within the kind of candidate and elect and elector elected official uh, wing of the party. And he's done that even though his broader appeal is so limited that at least if you're representing a district that is open to competition in a general election, distancing yourself from Trump might be smart politics uh, for for other Republicans, but they, ha- they haven't really organized in any kind of systematic way to put any sort of limits on him or to separate themselves from him um, in any kind of consistent manner over the past uh, uh, two years. And I-, I think this is very... It doesn't seem to be necessarily on a ideological or, or issue basis I and mean, people aren't really changing opinions on trade or anything like yeah. that they're just kind of going going with uh, uh, Trump because they know the Republican base is, is with Trump we actually saw this in the Michigan governor's race too where the if you want to say the more Trumpian candidate won the primary and it's it's having 
problems in the general election for Bill Schuette because he's uh, aligned himself more with Trump. But, but there was nothing about him, <laughs> him that necessarily connected him with Trump. I don't think he's endorsed any new Trumpian issue position. So it seems to be a, just a very, uh, they, they want to make a personalistic attachment uh, to Trump, but not necessarily kind of change their issue agenda. Yeah, and I think it goes to to show the power of the conservative media. Um, and the conservative media, by and large, has decided, with you know a few exceptions in terms of on the more elite, you side know, especially. elite yeah. George Will national few few of the people in National Review are, are obviously exceptions to that. But in terms of the sort of the popular media, cable news plus internet plus talk radio, you know, Trump's their guy. And um, if you're a Republican, even in a vulnerable district, you're you're scared to death that if you get crossways with Trump, that the conservative media will sort of come down on you and the voters in your party will will side with Trump um, in, in part because of that. So that's sort of a, an unexpected lack of change <laughs> in some ways. You know, the parties always uh, get behind their their incumbent uh, president. We some people expected it to be different this time um, because we had a, such a, a different um, uh, president. Um, what about what about broader changes um, to our view of the the, the Republican Party? Does uh, symbolic ideology still play the same role uh, that it played? And is, has Trump taught us anything about the the content of that symbolic ideology. Well, it seems to me that Trump is a good is a good test case for the extent to which symbolic conservatism at the mass level has a strong nationalist component to it, um, and even ethnocentric component to it. And people who thought that symbolic conservatism was a completely different animal from that, I think, have been forced to, to grapple with that as a component. But one, I would also yeah. say... Yeah. I mean, one of the, the points I always make about it is that, uh, you know, how can symbolic conservatism contain both George Bush's foreign policy and Donald Trump's foreign policy, as he articulated it in the campaign? And the answer is, well, it's it stays at this very symbolic general level of America might is right, even though there's two different sets of policy positions associated with that uh, view, it, you can imagine the same, very same people thinking that they're holding the same view of America's role in the world and endorsing these two very different candidates. Yeah, I think that's right. I also think, according to my observation, I also think Trump has shifted a bit to sound more like a traditional conservative over time. Certainly like on economic issues. Certainly on economic issues. He, in the 2016 campaign, for example, he, he almost never said anything about, you know, shrinking the size of government. That really wasn't part of his message. And since he's gotten into office, he's, he's talked that kind of more traditional Republican talk much more. And obviously um, gone along with the, the tax cut. And then, and yeah, the gone along agenda. with the specific yeah. policies that kind of flow from that. And uh, Trump has changed the party and changed conservatism to agree, but I, I to a degree, but I also think we, we can see the impact of, of the party and the ideological movement on Trump as well, that in some ways he's become more conventional in his rhetoric as time has gone on. 
So let's take, I guess, the more more stark view of this. Some people say to us that you know what you say is is symbolic conservatism. You know, was always racist or racially tinged. You know, white nationalist politics. So to what extent should we reach that that view um, uh, due to due to Trump? Um, and you know, have you changed your view on the extent to which that that's true? Yeah, I mean, I remember when we published the book, and even while we were writing the book, there was a a sort of a common critique from liberals that we were taking the small government conservative ideology too seriously as some as something sincere and not just kind of um, you know a dog whistle for ethnocentrism of various uh, types and and I think probably if we were writing the book today we'd talk about that issue more in the book Trump obviously brings this issue out more and I think he shows that there's there is some truth to that. But I also think he shows that, that there isn't just a simple equation. We can't simply say that symbolic conservatism is merely ethnocentrism or racism in disguise. And one of the ways I think that that is important is you can sort of see people who have who have gotten off the Republican or conservative bus with Trump, who in fact are the, the people who are opponents of Trump from within the Republican Party or within the conservative tradition. And when, you know, if it were just about taking what was always subtext and making it text, and so who really cares? He's just being honest. I don't think we would have seen that change. And we do well, see especially that Especially on folks that are, you know, economically invested in the Republican Party's policy priorities <laughs> and sort of on board in other, other ways. But there, there exactly are people right. who are so dis- disgusted by the racial politics that they, or the gender politics that they're making that move. Yeah. And, and they're not a majority of Republicans, but they are important in various ways. One population is just a lot of conservative intellectuals, professional Republicans in Washington who, you know, want nothing to do with the Trump administration, don't want to work in the government under Trump, don't support Trump actively within the party. And that has had an effect on Trump's, you know, governing ability and the kinds of people who he's been able to attract into power. And so that's an important story, even if it's not, you know, the average Republican voter. There are also pockets of previous Republican voters in a few key places, especially House districts in this election, um, districts that are upper middle class, white collar, professional, suburban, traditional red districts that are now in play or even leaning to the Democrats in part because you have these voters who were you know, happy to support George W. Bush or Mitt Romney, but are not willing to support Trump. And some of them, again, actively opposed to Trump. And it depend on how things go in November, it could turn out that those are the pivotal seats for control of the House. But we should also say, I guess, a few things about our um, our theory and its relationship to some other series about social identity. I mean, I think that the main the the main issue is that Republicans don't usually have to choose, right? Conservative identity, white identity, our religious identity are aligned, and it's a very homogenous party. And so, uh, it, let's say at the individual level, I don't necessarily think this is true, but let's say that white identity played just as much role in individual voters as it did in the Democratic Party or racial minority identification to the Democratic 
Democratic Party, it still wouldn't show up the same way in Republican politics. It wouldn't show up as an interest group of, of white people with certain interests um, fighting other interests within the Republican Party. And so it, it doesn't doesn't manifest in the same way, even if, you know, the same human psychological processes uh, are at uh, at play. And I think our, our view was always that there's a big divide between the policy agenda of Republicans in Washington and the views of their voters. Um, it's part of a general perspective on, on the right internationally that, you know, if you have a, a party that represents uh, upper income people and economic policy debates, you generally try to expand the debate to nationalism, to uh, religious identity, to, to social um, uh, concerns and, and protection. But it's also been a part of the specific history of the Republican Party, obviously, with, with uh, trying to take on uh, the South um, and take on new uh, uh, voters, you know, without being as explicit uh, as former Democratic politicians had been about uh, racial issues, but doing so in, in a way that certainly allows people uh, with uh, either racially prejudiced views or what we call racially resentful views to feel very at home in the Republican Party and not feel like they're one interest fighting other interests within the, within the party. The one place Trump has had a real policy impact is trade, but it doesn't seem to have transformed the party. There's a lot of enacted policy now, all at the administration, but it doesn't seem to have changed the views of Republican elected officials, which I think people would have predicted, okay, the Republican Party is shifting positions on trade. Yeah. Uh, so on the one hand, they're not stopping him. They could, in some ways, they have some power to stop him, but in other ways, they're you know they're also not going along with them. So is this yeah. just a, just an issue that that's the one issue that's off <laughs> off the uh, the main spectrum, or uh, you know, or is there something more that that could be a permanent change going on here? I don't know. I I, I think that it's it's true that other conservative politicians they don't seem to assume that this is that there's a real popular groundswell to be to adopt Trump's trade policies the way that they seem to believe there's a popular groundswell to adopt his immigration, immigration. policies yes. i think their feeling is that this isn't this isn't something that's a big enough issue at the mass level that they should maneuver away from the traditional free trade conservative elite consensus. You know, again, it's kind of interesting what didn't happen. I mean, a lot of people coming out of 2016 saw Trump as someone who could really be an economic populist. And that uh, the combination of Steve Bannon and Jared Kushner and Ivanka would sort of push Trump more to being this kind of heterodox figure who pulled the Republican Party to the left on economics. Yeah. Even and he was going to the right on, and we were going to have infrastructure. <laughs> and even, you know, I remember, you know, that when Trump, after he got elected, but before he took office, when he went to the carrier factory yeah. and claimed credit for having saved the jobs at this factory from being moved to Mexico. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, that looks like a very effective yeah, political move. And you something. could, 
yeah, yeah, you could have imagined a Trump, a national tour where he was going from state to state claiming credit for opening factories, for building new roads, for, you know, putting people to work. And then a lot of people would say, well, look, you know, I, there's things I don't like about the guy. He's rough around the edges. He says some things I don't like, but he seems to really be getting things done. He seems really to be, you know, looking out for the little guy. And um, again, what's kind of interesting is is how that hasn't happened, how easy it's been for the conventional Republican Party to to bring Trump in, you know, toward their view on economics and that he hasn't really felt the need to deliver on those promises as opposed to his promises about building the wall or draining the swamp or whatever. Looking ahead, there are some signs that victory in 2018 might bring a fight over confrontation within the Democratic Party. I think we may see a a fairly aggressive set of Democrats, not necessarily the entire party as a whole, but certainly the senators with presidential ambitions will have a very strong incentive to be leading voices against Trump. And and one thing that, that maybe has been a bit of a change since we wrote was one of the points we made in the book was there was a sort of long-term difference between the parties and how much party supporters preferred confrontation yeah, to compromise. To the and, yeah. you know, traditionally Republicans say, don't compromise, stick to your principles no matter what, even if it means you don't get much accomplished. And Democrats are more likely to say, moderate, cooperate with the opposition, take partial victories when you can, be more pragmatic. But that uh, was always pretty specific to policy in the sense that you know, when Democrats feel they can get something, yeah, yeah, um, you know, they they they'll take half a loaf. They right, but if that policy is coming with a, a Trump face on it, <laughs> <laughs> it may turn out to be more advantageous politically, at least in a in a crowded primary race, to stand up and say, "Well, I'm not supporting any bill that Trump." is willing to support no matter what. And especially again, since you can you just make the argument that that Trump's not a trustworthy negotiating partner or that yeah, you know, and, he's gonna backtrack on Right, right. And that. and and he's on his way out and we can yeah. hold out for a better deal once we get a Democratic president, so there's no reason to compromise today. Um, and we may see more of that than we have in the past. I still think it's it's still an asymmetry between the parties. I don't think the Democrats are becoming the mirror image of the Republican, the Tea Party era Republicans on this score by any means, but I yeah, do so, think it's a change. So we saw a little bit of preview um, in the in the shutdown um, over the immigration vote where they supposedly won something from Mitch McConnell that never materialized. You know, they never really got to vote on the on the Dreamers. Um, that that was sort of a nice mix of the rising left demands and the rising constituency demands to do something about uh, a population that was facing um, kind of uh, imminent difficulty. Are they going to try something like that uh, again? Um, I guess on the on the other hand, you did see the Dem senator saying, wow, I didn't want to do that. That was <laughs> that was a mistake. Mistake. Let's not do that when an election is is coming up soon. Um, you know, are we going to see more more hardball from from Democrats, even if it, I guess, doesn't come with with policy success? I think we'll see more hardball from some Democrats, but maybe not others. And I think this might be a dimension upon which we do get serious divisions within the Democratic Party. I mean, even just the other day. 
you know, there was this quote where Dick Durbin was talking about eliminating the filibuster on on federal judges and saying saying that was a mistake for the Democrats to do that back in the Obama years. And then you had Chris Murphy sort of coming along and saying, well, that, you know, that we needed to do. They were filibustering all our judges. All we would be doing is leaving more vacancies for the Republicans to fill today. They would have done, you know, they would have gotten rid of the filibuster themselves the first chance they got. So, in fact, that was the smart move. So, additionally, the sort of the the red state Democrats in the Senate are still a major chunk of the Democratic uh, conference and uh, Democrat caucus, and uh, their political incentives are going to be very different from the blue state Democrats with with presidential dreams. So it may turn out that there is substantial debate within the party if they get back into power in either the House or the Senate between uh, the compromisers and the confrontationalists, and that that's, in fact, one of the main axes of democratic disagreement in 2019 and 2020. Yeah, I think this may play out in the in the presidential race, uh, because I think, you know, even if it's sort of not really true that there's a rising uh, left pivotal constituency in Democratic Party primaries, the presidential candidates might still feel like it's it's worth it to act that way. You know, that is, they, they may not want to do anything to to make the Bernie voters mad. They may, there may be a sort of a competition to become the, the candidate of the, the left side of the, the Democratic primary, even if you have all these people in Congress saying, let's let's not do this. Um, the, the one place I, I'll look, I'll be looking for this is on impeachment. You know, there's, there's already enough out there on Trump that, you know, some Democratic primary actors will be, you know, calling for Democrats to, to move forward with that, even if not much else is, is released. Democratic nominees, uh, potential Democratic nominees might feel like they need to come out in favor of it. And there's, there's not much of a downside, even if the congressional leadership does not want to be focused on that at all. So if the parties have changed somewhat, are they becoming less asymmetric? Hopkins doesn't think so. Is there a reason to believe that the parties are becoming more similar to, to one another, or do they look uh, just as different as they as they have um, when when we were coming <laughs> when we were coming up with this? They've changed. I don't know if they've changed in a way to become more similar. I think some of the changes we've talked about in some ways reverse differences as much as they reduce differences. The Democrats are probably, to some degree, as I say, becoming more confrontational, but the Republicans aren't becoming less confrontational. <laughs> um, you know, in some ways, Trump's partisanship, you know, for someone who's not exactly a lifelong Republican mm-hmm. or even a lifelong conservative, Trump's an incredibly partisan figure mm-hmm. um, who really doesn't even bother to to try to reach out to people in the in the opposite parties. So it's hard to say on that score that the parties look same, even if there have been changes. Uh, similarly, we can say, well, the Trump demonstrates the the rise of sort of conservative identity politics in the Republican Party. But it's not like identity politics are becoming weaker in the Democratic Party. It's an incredibly powerful force in the Democratic Party. And so I don't uh, see that as really making the parties more similar. I, I think a, a lot of what we see is uh, is very much 
in this in the same patterns that we identified, and we we sort of sort of tried to make the case that this wasn't a product just of the moment of the time we were doing our research, but that it really had a very long-standing and very stable foundations. And the other thing which we haven't talked as much about is the the policy specificity difference. Um, we sort of alluded to it a little bit earlier, but the the fact that it's in the Democrats' advantage to talk about the laundry list of specific policies. Here what I'll, is what I'll do on healthcare, on education, on environment, on social security, and it's to the Republicans' advantage to paint in these very bold, big general pictures with general rhetorical and symbolic themes and to not get into the weeds of how exactly I'm going to go about implementing my policy. Yeah, that's and the, the only way Trump can operate. I mean, in you know, case, the, so. there's there's really been no change there. And well, here and, you and have, in governance, the, the Republicans yeah. have had the, the classic problem. I mean, it looked like they were going to have all sorts of new problems due to Trump. But in fact, the, their main problem was the classic one. They couldn't translate this broad vision into anything specific that wasn't horribly unpopular. <laughs> yeah, and you have you have these two major legislative initiatives, one successful and one unsuccessful, past Congress, where the, the tax cut bill and repealing the ACA, they're not talking about those all that much in the campaign. You know, there, there really has been, I think, a fair amount of reporting uh, in the last few months that Republican consultants have basically uh, concluded that these are just not winning issues for the party. And so they can't, again, go to the voters and say, well, there might be things you don't like about Trump, but we're getting all these policies done that you like because uh, the, the policies are not popular at the specific level of, of, yeah, there, of there, were, you know. there was actually an ad data where the um, where they are talking about taxes a lot they're not talking about the specific tax bill so they're not saying I cut your taxes they're saying the Dems are going to raise your taxes and you know this is an overall difference between the parties right uh, right and similarly on health care it's yeah. the Democrats are going to give you government run health care single payer um, and and even on immigration that you know they it's not about this Trump specific immigration policy, which is not particularly popular, it's accusing the Democrats of being for open borders, and that's sort of how you talk about that issue. And a lot so, of left boogeymen are coming out as well. So, yeah, yeah. So, so it it seems to me that you know less has changed than we might think, and in fact, the change really is to just further differentiate the parties. They really are living in two different worlds. Hopkins also published a new book, Red Fighting Blue, about increasing geographic polarization and remaining regionalism in the U.S. I asked him what it suggests about the elections this year. My new book, Red Fighting Blue, How Geography and Electoral Rules Polarize American Politics, now out from Cambridge University Press, makes the case that one of the most important characteristics of our current political situation is an unprecedented degree of regional differentiation in electoral results that is uh, further reinforced by the use of winner-take-all in this country that have the effect of magnifying differences in party support from one part of the country to the other. And that the various regions and states are more strongly aligned with one party and more consistently 
aligned with one party today than has been true really for the rest of modern American political history. And so how does that apply to 2018? Well, we still see that same general pattern with the, the same states really being blue states, the same states being red states, and the same being purple states. Now, some of that is a surprise to some people because Trump's strength in the Midwest, which ended up being so key to him winning in 2016, um, doesn't seem to have produced a more general more more permanent red shift uh, in that region. The Midwest is still the one pivotal region where virtually all of the states are up for grabs, both in presidential and Senate and House and governor's uh, races. And a lot of the hot races this year are, uh, you know, are in those Midwestern states, that sort of frost belt area. Or if anything, on the other side. So, you know, Ohio, Michigan and Wisconsin Senate races and that being the, the you know, the clear dim uh, right, victories. Right. So whereas we might have thought from 2016 that we'd be in a situation where you know the the Democrats would have to be really working hard to defend Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, and they'd be sort of kissing goodbye, Missouri, North Dakota, Indiana, you know, instead, the picture is brighter for them. However, it's still a tough slog for them in those really red states, you know, not the purple states, Uh, they're doing all right in the purple states, but it's the red states, uh, where it's still tough for them and where their most vulnerable Senate races are. So it's a case of fighting against a historical tide that's very much been moving against them in the long term in that in, in, in those particular states. In some ways, losing the 2016 election at the presidential level may be what saves Clara McCaskill or Joe Donnelly or Heidi Heitkamp, if anything does save them, is uh, that, that there's enough of a backlash against Trump that you know they can sort of eke out another six years in those states. But in the long term, that's the you know, that those are some of the places where it's tougher for the Democrats over time. There's a lot more to learn. Political Research Digest is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and on iTunes. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to David Hopkins for joining me. Join us next time to find out how people perceive and misperceive economic inequality and the need to address it.